Yeah, come on. What's up, guys? Yeah, let me just get set up set up here. Uh, I think it's someone's birthday today. Yeah. I think it's Drew, actually. Happy birthday, Drew. Um, uh, 20, 19? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but yeah, guys, y'all want to hear the word? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So um, yeah, this one's going to be, let me start off with a story that's kind of like, what? I remember the first time I had seen the Lord heal someone right in front of me. I was working at my old job as an orientation leader for the university, you know, at UTRGV. I had just gotten plugged into Chi Alpha, literally probably a semester before, and knowing the Lord pretty much since high school, knowing the Lord pretty much since high school, something was stirring up in my soul. It was way different from how it used to be. Uh, in this book I'm reading right now, Mountain Rain, which is an account of the missionary James O. Fraser, I think is, yeah, the missionary's there, and there's the book. Um, he had met the Lord and gotten saved when he was a teenager, but it wasn't until he read a little tract booklet in college that absolutely blew his mind. In his steam pressure engineering class, a classmate of his passed him this track, which read, if our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and looked, as of course he would look, to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. This booklet caused such an upheaval within his own heart. The account reads, uh, the book, he had always assumed that he should work, develop his gifts, and enter a useful career, of course, being God-fearing, uh, he should live a moral life and attend church. What more could God ask for? James had done well in mathematics and distinguished himself already in en engineering. More than this, he had spent years of practice in music and was soon to give his first London piano recital. A young man of 20 could hardly have achieved more, but the booklet su uh, suggested, the one, you know, one that he got, that God was asking for something far more and away beyond all of this. He would then go on and heed the call of the Lord and become the first missionary to the pagan tribes of deep in the jungle of, of China, southwest China. And although my literal journey wasn't that far, I, you know, I stayed in the valley. I, I, I know what it feels like to be saved and yet not have that heart, that burden for the people that God loves and yet are lost. Once the Lord put this burden in my heart, I strive to make him known. But that fear and hesitancy, I'll be honest, kicks in sometimes once you're actually in that situation to do what the Lord wants you to do. Let me share with you this example. I was walking a student to get a student ID on one of my work days. It's part of my job as an orientation leader. We were having an orientation. On the way there, uh, sometimes there's an awkward silence and you're just walking with them. Uh, this was to the union. Yeah, it's up there. Yeah, we haven't been there in years. Um, he broke that silence by just saying, man, my back is pretty sore. I asked him why, and he said, I don't know, like I slept wrong or something. Uh, and um, yeah, he responded that he was really tired. So I asked him, hey, like, would you want me to pray over your back? And he was like, yeah, sure, why not? So I only remember saying and asking the Lord to heal him, um, you know, that the Father to, to give the healing of, of heaven over him. And after I was done praying, he looked at me surprised, saying, dude, I don't know what you did, but my lower back feels so much better. 
And I said, dude, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I can instantly tell that the pain that he had was lifted off of him. Uh, it was so exciting. <laughs> that was the first time in my life I saw the actual and real healing of Jesus before my eyes, which pretty much proves that Jesus is still very much alive today. This has always been his nature, to move whenever and wherever we ask for it in faith, for him to move. Um, so let's look at this happening when Jesus himself was here on earth, walking amongst men in the flesh. In well, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, let me give a, a little quick background. Uh, Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum was quickly becoming the center of Jesus' ministry, right smack in the center of Galilee, right above the Sea of Galilee, too. The house that Jesus was staying in was packed to the brim with people waiting for Jesus to come and speak. An air of expectancy and excitement for the Lord could have been felt in and around the house. Let me share with you what the scripture says about what went down. In uh, verse 1, it reads, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law were sitting there and thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that our eyes will just be fixed upon you. I pray against any distractions of this week or distractions right now, Lord, but our eyes and our mind will just be fixed upon you and how, and how you're moving, Lord God, how, how you just, Lord, you just advance your, your kingdom on earth at this moment, Lord God. In your name we pray, amen. So let's focus on all the people here. Well, who's the man with the palsy? Well, first of all, what is palsy? Modern translations, well, as you saw, use the word paralysis. So that man was, was paralyzed, probably from birth, but we're not quite sure. There's one thing that we can definitely infer, though. That man may have been carried to Christ by his friends, but he was going to him of his own accord as well, by his own will. And he possessed the faith that if he is brought before Jesus, he will be healed, 100% effectiveness. So all right, straight off the bat, we see the incredible faith of the man with the palsy. But let's also look at the faith of his friends. Uh, going back to the verses we read in verses 3 and 4, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. We can just imagine 
the extreme sense of urgency, and at the same time, the extreme sense of compassion that the man had for their paralyzed friend. Four friends who saw the crowd and knew that getting their friend, navigating through the dense crowd of dozens packed in to hear the words of Jesus, you know, to get him to Jesus at any cost. Four friends who believed that their efforts would lead to their friend's complete bodily restoration. Four friends putting in the effort to make sure they wouldn't miss the opportunity for their friend's life to change forever. The scripture even says that they tore the, off the roof of the house that Jesus was staying in. Roofs back in the first century in the Middle East were usually made out of a mixture of vegetation and clay. So honestly, it would have been pretty easy to rip off the, the, the roof. Was it worth breaking the roof so the friend could meet Jesus? Was it, worth, was it worth it to the dismay of the house owner? Is it technically illegal? Honestly, at least for the guys in Calva, it isn't small group until someone's asking, isn't this illegal? <laughs> uh, since being a small group leader, uh, this is, I'm not lying, the cops had had to come join us three times. Uh, I will save those stories for next time, but I promise you, we weren't doing anything wrong. <laughs> You know, like, just like, hey, what's going on? Like, nothing, you know? Um, I'm innocent, I tell you. Uh, so the same compassion that we see in the four friends is the exact same compassion that we should have. This is the whole point of small group, leading others to Christ, whatever it costs, and the difficulties it might take are totally worth it. Even if there's a huge crowd you got to fight through, even if you break open a roof, even if your small group guy is literally paralyzed, there's a story about this. I remember at this Chi Alpha conference in Missouri, uh, they were talking about the cafe way out in Indiana, um, that the student leader of the campus LGBT group was born without the use of his legs. So he would use an electric chair to move around. Upon meeting his soon-to-be small group leader at Booth, like they had their own booth, he was reluctant to go to small group after he invited him to go because, you know, he was, he had not only did he identify somewhere in the LGBT spectrum, but he was also the literal leader of the whole campus. Um, well, then when the whole small group finally met up with this guy, they decided to go over to a bigger apartment, but it was raining outside, and along the way, the new guy's wheelchair malfunctioned, and it was uh, stuck in a puddle. Uh, the whole small group, each guy decided to lift him up, carrying him a couple blocks down, in the middle of the downpour to the dry apartment. What an amazing first day of small group. Since that day, that new guy in small group knew that he had friends that loved him and cared for him more than anyone else. And has been going, and according to, to the campus pastor, he's been, been active in small group. In this exact same compassion that we ought to have, literally willing to carry your friend as far as possible for the sake of fellowship with Jesus. But honestly, there's no other way to catch it or replicate it unless you've seen the Lord face to face and seen personally his compassion for the lost. Let's look at the way the master interacted with these, these friends, and especially the man with the palsy. Let's look at Jesus' method. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, it reads, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. As we went over before, Seeing their faith refers to not only the faith of the four men, but also of the man on the mat as well. And the book of Matthew, because uh, this story appears in, in each of the Gospels except for John, uh, in Matthew's account, Jesus even says, do not fear to the man, 
meaning that he was full of sudden fear, almost as if the man laying on the mat knew that Jesus instantly knew that Jesus was just wasn't looking at the surface problem, but the deeper hidden issue, what his sins were. Which proves sin is known by God. I heard it like this. Sinning is a form of practical atheism. You are acting like God cannot see you or that he, he does not exist. But oh, how wrong we are. He sees it all. And in that exact moment, the reaction from the paralyzed man and his friends most likely would have been, okay, thank you for forgiving the sins, but you know, what about the legs? Don't get me wrong. The friends' attentions were, were awesome. For him to be healed by the Lord himself, they had the faith for it too. But Jesus had something he needed to do that was even more pressing, to forgive the man's sins. Jesus saw their faith and forgave the paralytic, but nothing happened to his paralysis in that initial minute. And so, therefore, the sin issue is of greater importance needed to be dealt with more immediately than the healing. G. Campbell Morgan explains this scene superbly. First, he starts off explaining that Jesus' words in the Greek, literally, thy sins are sent forth. What an amazing pronouncement. Then the preacher Morgan goes into more detail. In that presence, the man had become more acutely conscious of his sin than even of his own physical disability. He found himself lying in the light of those eyes, which even then on the earthly level were eyes of fire. He was conscious of the penetrating glance and unquestionably conscious of his own sin as he had never been before. Also, this, was the, this is a very significant moment in the Gospels. Uh, this is actually literally the first time in the whole scriptures where Jesus says to a man that his sins are forgiven. This is revolutionary because this is, the, this is the, the core doctrine of Christianity, the announcement of the possibility of the forgiveness of sins, the only way to become totally unclean. And so to this massive rev, uh, revelation in the words of Jesus, this triggers the spiteful reaction of the religious leaders of the day the Pharisees. In uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, we read, but some of the teachers of, of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. This is actually a legitimate statement. The Pharisees are asking, only God can forgive sins. We'll get back to this in a bit. Well, uh, think of it like this. You can only forgive things that were done against you. But to claim that some random person's sins you never met before has sinned against you, that's a whole other thing. The only one who can claim that all sins ever committed were against him would be God alone. Um, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 reads, I am he who plots out your transgressions for my own sake. It's for his own sake. That's why the Pharisees were so concerned. Jesus was claiming to be God. These men... Uh, the Pharisees were, were the learned Bible scholars of their day, trained in the Torah for decades by studying and memorizing the books of the Bible that were present at this time, the Old Testament. But more than acting like theological policemen who followed Jesus around, there was something far more evil in their hearts. Whenever Jesus is on the move in the Gospels, it is almost at every turn his power and his work is contradicted at every moment by these leaders. Their envy and rage materializes mainly because of how the Pharisees perceived Jesus to be stealing their authority on the scripture and of stealing their crowds and churchgoers too. This instance in the beginning of the mark outlines 
who who Jesus' most vicious opponents will be throughout the book and the rest of the Gospels, the religious leaders of Israel. So to this response, how did Jesus respond to them? Uh, Let's look look and see. Uh, This is the side of the healing. In verse 8 we read, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this. Let's, let's really dig deep in, into the, these lines. Like, honestly, I, you could do multiple sermons on every line of this. <laughs> to, to go back to the Pharisees' response, we see that the root of the Pharisees' concern was that of a matter of authority. Only God can forgive sins. And by Jesus saying that he will prove to them the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins by healing the man, shows that this authenticates his ability to forgive sins, thus showing he is also Lord and God. We have to remember the last sermon that Daniel preached. Uh, the weird Texas freeze, don't forget about that. But the, oh, before the, that, the Roman centurion said something very interesting to Jesus. I, too, am a man of authority. Where he recognized that Jesus' disposition was familiar to him. Um, reminding him of a military authority, which he is because he's king. But in three other parts of the Gospels, Jesus' authority is also mentioned. Um, in one instance, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is said by the crowd to teach as one having authority, which shows his ethical authority. Uh, and this is Matthew chapter 7. And uh, another instance is what I'm talking about right now, which shows he can fully restore man both in the physical with the healing of the paralysis and in the spiritual with the forgiveness of his sins which shows Jesus' redeeming authority. At the very end of the book of Matthew, which is famous in missions, it reads Matthew chapter 28 at the end, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, which shows his governing authority. But where does his authority to forgive sins originate from? Um, I think uh, this verse in John actually explains it, chapter 10. Verses 17 through 18. Therefore doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one, take, no one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. In that saying, we find the great secret of authority given to him to forgive sins. It was because of that that he had the right and power to say to a man that sins are dismissed. Um, but let's look deeper into the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees, which is easier, really, think about it, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. If you think about it, Jesus' words are his deeds. He is perfectly trustworthy and the most reliable man who ever walked the earth because whatever he said, he also did. His words are his deeds. Even before the Lord walked the earth, In the very beginning, the universe and the world was created by his word. And even then, all he had to do was say the word and everything came into existence. All he had to do was to say the word and the paralyzed man was healed. 
All he had to do was say the word, and centurion's servant at home several miles away was healed. It was not difficult at all for the Lord to create everything. It was not difficult for the Lord to heal that man as he did with everyone else who was healed. All he had to do was to say the word. But with the forgiveness of sins, as outlined in the Old Testament and time and time again, starting with the Torah, every sin must be punished by God. And what is the punishment for sinning? It says it clearly in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The penalty for our sin is death. So forgiving sins requires something much more than just saying it with a word. It requires an action, an action of punishment from God. Let's look back at the Greek again. When Jesus says to the man, thy sins are sent forth, uh, where are the sins going? They can't just be snapped out of existence with a snap of a finger. They have to go somewhere. So where, are, where did his sins go to? This is where it gets real. The only possible way Jesus could say to, to that man that his sins were forgiven was only if Jesus was going to go to the cross to die and take the punishment that was actually deserving of, of sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The man with palsy sins, and so were all of ours, were being sent forth directly to the cross. Therefore, it was actually far more costly and difficult for Jesus to forgive that man's sins than to heal him because it costed the very life of God's own son. Put your trust in the one with all the authority, the Son of God, who laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. By seeing Jesus going to the cross for our sake and the chance of all humanity finally returning to the only identity and the only place they were meant to be as a real son or daughter of God. Malachi chapter 3 reads, He will be like a refiner's fire. He will refine you. Uh, Daniel, you can come back up. He saw all of the sins of the man with palsy and didn't hold a single thing against him. Instead, showed him mercy and compassion, full restoration, full refining. How many people need full restoration? It's completely possible by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Do you have faith, the same faith as the paralyzed man's friends, that Jesus would do a mighty work within his friend? Do you believe this yourselves, within yourselves, truly? Do you have the heart of these disciples who led their paralyzed friend to Jesus? Look at the faith of them. Not only was he healed, but he was saved. How many people can you carry to the feet of Jesus? This means taking as many people as we can to his feet. But we must remember this. We are not the ones responsible for, for saving. Everything happens at the feet of Jesus. We'll just let the master do his work. Our job is not to replace the work of Christ. It's simply to bring people to the presence of our Savior. We don't, overcom- we don't overcomplicate it. It's not our job. Let the master do his work. Some mothers in this room want nothing more than to have like an authoritarian control over things. If you don't have control over things, you feel like you're losing it. A grip on the way things ought to be, you think. The Pharisees felt the exact same way, feeling their authority infringed upon by the Son of God. 
Jesus told the Pharisees time and time again, look, you need to let go. You can't be surrendered to me and still think you're in charge. Let all of your authority go and submit yourself to the most reliable and trustworthy one, the only one with the real authority to run your life, Christ Jesus. So, uh, right now, the, uh, we're going to open up the altar. And, um, yeah, if you want to catch that same burden or if you need to just submit to the lordship of Jesus where he tells you you need to let go. You can't be holding on to, you know, making your own kingdom and things like that. It's so much better un under Jesus. Jesus.